Welcome to The Being Leader. I'm Annabelle Graham. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on this episode of The Being Leader, the podcast that discusses how we need to show up and be as leaders, reflecting on what impacts our behaviours, our relationships and our outcomes, and allows us to focus more on our approach to leading ourselves, teams and our organisations, rather than just doing stuff blindly. In this current series of episodes, we're focusing on how we need to be with our teams, how we need to show up as leaders, and also the conditions we need to enable in our teams to make them truly high-performing. In this month's dialogue, we're going to shine the light on the topic of resilience and explore how this impacts us and also impacts our teams and what we need to do to be more resilient as leaders and also create resilience teams. I'm joined today by Sarah Jones, who is a trainer, facilitator and coach. Sarah works with organisations to develop compassionate leaders and resilient employees, people who are able to cope with challenging situations, both in and outside of work, and who can navigate uncertainty and ambiguity and can handle change and pressure. She specialises in training, coaching and consultancy around stress management, resilience and employee well-being, as well as a wide range of personal skills development training and leadership and management development. Sarah, thanks for joining me on what is a super hot day. <laughs> it certainly is. Thanks, Annabelle. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, we're both sat here with fans going. Um, so obviously I have to introduce you a little bit. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you do and the type of businesses that you work with? Yes, yeah, certainly. So I've been a freelance training consultant now for 15 years. Um, before that, I worked in financial services for 20 years. And the last role that I did in financial services was called performance manager. So as well as um, performance management issues, I started developing a big interest in the whole well-being agenda um, and looked to introduce more training and development opportunities for staff, um, coaching team leaders and various well-being initiatives such as supporting National Work-Life Balance Week and National Stress Awareness Day. And so I started to see the difference that it made to employee engagement. So it seemed like a very obvious thing to do when I set up in business for myself to find out more about that subject and offer that to businesses. In terms of the businesses I work with, I still work with financial services. I work with councils. Um, I work with law firms. Uh, I've worked in the public sector, the private sector, and we've worked together in the voluntary sector as well. We have, absolutely. You know, and if I think, I mean, we've known each other for years, but I haven't really talked that much around, you know, why it was resilience and well-being that ended up really being that sort of point of difference for you and why you focused on that other than the leadership side. I think it was because of the difference I saw in Barclays where staff knew that their employer was investing in them, whether it was, in, whether it was investing in their personal development, their well-being, or their working environment. Um, and what it proved to me is that when we treat people with respect, support their mental health, develop and coach them, it reaps rewards in terms of loyalty, productivity, low absence levels and turnover. Okay. And when you see the, the type of work that you do, what impact does that tend to have when you're working with businesses? I think from a simplistic point of view, people who are under a huge burden simply don't perform to their best. Any employee who's struggling with their mental health 
isn't going to be working at their maximum. Uh, I'm not going to bore you with too many statistics, but probably the one that really makes people sit up and take notice is that according to the Office for National Statistics, poor mental health is estimated to carry an economic and social cost of £105 billion a year in England. Wow. I know, it's just phenomenal. And, and it's whether you're looking at uh, the, the cost of um, temporary staff or agency staff, recruiting new staff if people leave. It's just phenomenal. And of course, those untangibles of what does lower productivity cost mm. an organisation. I also think I've worked with enough businesses now that I can usually tell the difference between those organisations where there is a genuine commitment to staff health and well-being and those where it's simply a tick-in-the-box exercise. And most importantly, the workforce knows it as well. Yeah, because I suppose that's going to show up in quite a few places. I know you said, you know, from that, the sickness and recruitment, but, you know, that's going to be from, it could not even be persistent absence. It could just be, you know, picking, people taking off the odd day here and there. Absolutely. Um, taking time off maybe for caring. And it'll get wrapped up in other stuff. You know, it'll go off in holidays or compassionate leave. So it doesn't even show yeah. up in some way. No. no. From that point of view. And I suppose also it, it'll kick into those pieces around sort of grievance and poor performance, which could, which may look like something else. Which is why it's so difficult to slap a cost on it, because there are so many intangibles. But the bottom line is that from a business perspective, it saves time and money. But from a moral perspective, it's simply the right thing to do. We want to create workplaces where people feel supported, Mm. they feel valued, they enjoy coming to work, and they recommend that place of work to others. Absolutely. So... When you're talking to businesses or talking to leaders in organisations, what are the type of common issues that tend to come up? I think the vast majority of leaders genuinely want to do the right thing by their workforce, but they don't always know what the right thing is. They worry that they'll say something wrong, exacerbate the situation or offend somebody. The majority of leaders are promoted because they're very good at what they do. Policy, procedures, problem solving, stakeholder management, whatever. But when they're faced with an individual who breaks down because their partner's just left them or because they're dealing with a bereavement or a multitude of other reasons, they don't always have the skills or confidence to know how best to help and support that individual. Yeah, and, and I think there's, you mentioned two or three things there, which I think is quite interesting. The, the leaders who are promoted for being fantastic members of staff or fantastic engineers or fantastic salespeople, whatever that may be. Yeah. I think in my old industry of retail, it used to be called, you were given the keys in the car and kicked out the door, which literally <laughs> meant was that was how you trained an area. Yeah. You know, here's the keys, there's the car, crack on. But actually, there's this whole fallacy about... Um, you know, not bringing our home life into work. And I think we definitely see it in, you know, in the coaching world when you're talking to people and they sit there and go, okay, so these are my coaching goals and I need to focus on influencing and I need to get better at managing my team. And, and then you sort of talk through all of the barriers behind it and say, what, imp- what impacts you? And you to find out there's a whole work-life balance issue and some stress there because we forget we're individuals. Yeah. But we can't take us out of 
what we do as a role no matter how and the most effective organizations are the ones that take a holistic interest in their workforce and recognize that there is a person outside of the nine to five with problems issues worries concerns stresses and if you can look at them holistically and support mm. them then you do re still reap the benefits in the workplace absolutely so when you're looking at individuals what type of signs are we are you looking for or are you training people to look for to be aware that this that there might be some stress issues or mental well-being issues i think the issue with the, the signs and symptoms of stress is that they are so wide and so varied if mm -hmm. i ask you to think of five people you need you you know the chances are you would come up with five completely different signs and symptoms. Yeah. So I think of my immediate family. For one, stress will manifest itself as IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. Somebody else will, it will manifest itself as sleepless nights. Um, somebody else, their skin will flare up. They'll get psoriasis or eczema. So it's so wide and so varied. So I think what I, what I say when I talk to leaders is that it's looking out for a change in what you would consider somebody's normal behavior. Mm. Somebody who's normally quite quiet, quite well-mannered, has an emotional out, outburst. Or somebody who um, is usually quite extrovert becomes very quiet and withdrawn. Mm. Now, even then, we don't have to label it as that person is obviously suffering from stress, but it should be enough for their team leader or even just a supportive colleague to take them to one side and say you don't quite seem yourself is there anything up we haven't labeled it we haven't badged it we're having a compassionate conversation because this person seems to be a bit out of sorts absolutely and i suppose you've got the challenge compounded on top of that but if you've got managers and leaders who who do the things that you and I know happen every time because we have spent enough time um, working with leaders and organizations talking about how to manage their employees effectively. They cancel one-to-ones. They don't have checking conversations with them. Absolutely. They look up from the laptop in the process of having said one-to-one -to, -one to notice that Fred is actually about to cry. He's that fed up with what you're telling him. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I really don't want fred to cry because i have no idea how to deal with fred if he starts to cry um and this is why i call it compassionate conversations it's just taking an interest in how somebody's feeling how they're coping what's going on for them both in and outside of the workplace so i want to just pick up on that piece on compassion for a minute because i think it's that piece about it's another word I'm going to use another one that's another one that I think sometimes gets misdiagnosed empathy and we think they're different things. So how would you, how would you describe compassion? What does it mean to you when you're applying it to that context of conversations? To me, compassion is triggered by noticing someone who is suffering. It can be defined as a willingness and a desire to be kind and empathic to others. And leaders can't do that when they're busy doing, focusing on getting the job done targets, deadlines, KPIs. Compassionate leadership in practice means leaders listening to those they lead, working to understand the challenges they face, mm -hmm. empathizing and taking action to support them. Okay. Yeah, and I think that that becomes a very tangible description yeah. for people as well. Something that they can hold on to. 
because otherwise it's quite a big word and I think people people can struggle with big words they can't see how it fits into their role and that becomes quite a tangible way of looking at it so have you seen anything shift because I'm conscious obviously you know we've we are how many months into a pandemic and and while I don't don't try and bang on onto it on this because obviously there's things that happen outside of it it's probably with people working in dispersed teams mm. and I'm going to use the word dispersed rather than virtual because I'm conscious that not every workplace is is virtual you know some people are yeah. still out doing the day yeah. job you know on the roads up a pole down a hole sat in a hospital working in a shop that they've yeah. been doing irrespective and their work life hasn't changed but actually the mix of how teams are working has changed have you seen in the conversation you've had with your clients a shift in what's coming up for their workforce, but also in what they're looking for? I think it's massively split. So in terms of the people I've been working with virtually through the pandemic, I would say it's almost evenly split between those who are loving working from home. They're enjoying the freedom, the flexibility, mm-hmm money they're saving in terms of not commuting exactly you know enjoying the fact that they can have spend their working day in their tracksuit bottoms or their pajamas if they so wish um, and surprisingly feel as if they are more connected with their teams because they're actually having more um, Google meets or, or team meetings or zoom meetings than they did when they were in the office equally there are those that are, set, are saying this has been going on too long now I need that human interaction I need what I can't get through a screen and an element of frustration and again I think the best businesses are the ones that are giving people the option um, so I, I know a couple of councils where they've said, you know, forget coming back to work until January. However, if you need that human interaction, if you're fed up of staring at the same four walls, then feel free to come back in beforehand. You know, we obviously have to put the measures in place for social distancing, but it's those businesses that recognise that not everybody is having the time of their lives being able to work from home. Yeah, I think that I think that's very true. And I'm seeing that as well with the clients I'm working with. And I think you've got this mix of it's interesting how businesses who probably would never have thought about that beforehand, who would have been actually, no, you need to be in the office nine to five, have now maybe recognized that for some people it's great. But for those who are either on their own or they're flat sharing or they're trying to work off their bed because they're sat in their, yeah. their room, um, it's, it's not great. And others yeah. who are like, please, God, get me away from my kids. Um, and, and interestingly, a couple of my clients have said when they've done the surveys, if actually it's not working for you, they're the people who have come back first. So those who are actually fine with it have stayed away or they've done a mixture of people coming in and, um, maybe working an alternate shift. So there's been a lot more, I think, awareness that it's not been great for everybody. Yeah especially now where things have shifted and it's not completely in lockdown. So there is that flexibility to be able to move. So when we're talking about resilience, again, it's one of those big words that brings up so many of different connotations for people. What would you say are the key characteristics? If we are trying to create a resilient leader, what would we be thinking about and focusing on? Um, well, in, in terms of what I do with 
leaders um, is I use a resilience assessment questionnaire from organisational health psychologists because what they've done is they've actually um, worked to define the characteristics of a resilient person. Okay. So when I work with either leaders or individuals, it's looking at the characteristics of resilient people. And what are it's, they? It's strongly believed that it's, resilience is very much like emotional intelligence, as in it's not a static state. And if we're aware of what the characteristics are, we can develop our competence in those areas. So with resilience, resilient um, characteristics, it's things like interpersonal competence, self-confidence, having a positive outlook, being well-organized, having a strong support network, being flexible and adaptable, personal vision or foresight, and pro uh, problem solving. And if you Google it, the, the definitions change very, very slightly and the, the, the names of, of the characteristics change slightly. But essentially, psychologists are agreed that there are these characteristics mm. that make up a resilient person. So the questionnaire helps people to assess which ones they're actually quite good at mm -hmm. and which ones they need to work on. So if we link resilience with mental health, um, experts say that one of the key characteristics is having a strong support network around you. Um, and it's not just saying, well, you know, um, my sister could be my support network um, and I can go to her about anything, whether it's work related or non-work related. And the problem with only having one person in your support network is, well, what about if she's under excessive pressure or stress or she's not available? I'm not going to want to burden her with my issues. So having a wide and diverse support network gives us people that we can go to. And the other thing I talk about is that actually the person that you might go to when you're bursting to share some really good news isn't necessarily the person that you go to when you want somebody to give you some practical advice or challenge you. Um, so things like a, a strong support network are really important and the questionnaire helps you to assess well which ones do I, I you know come out quite high in and therefore focus your efforts on the ones that perhaps you score lower in. Mm, absolutely and when we're thinking about that because I think and I absolutely have seen that support network you know and I've especially seen it with with leaders and with where they are the support network for their employee. They have yeah. no one else to go to. Yeah. And that's really draining because it's like, not only am I your manager, not only am I having to deal with all this stuff at work, I now am your emotional support as well. It's draining, but it's also a huge responsibility. You know, I don't want to get this wrong. This is somebody's mental health and emotional well-being that I'm talking about. Um, I need to get this right. Yeah. And equally, I think there's also, there's the guilt of going, I don't know if I can support this. And what happens if I stop? Yeah. Yeah. You know, so we get this whole piece around attachment theory coming in um, of, you know, how do I pull myself away in a careful way? That's it's what I was saying at the beginning, really, that the majority of leaders genuinely want to do the right thing by their workforce but they don't always know what the right thing is to do. Absolutely. And, and there's a fear in that. There's a fear of stepping over that line and talking about the personal side in case I get, you know, caught up in it or actually I'm out my depth mm. and I don't know what to say anymore. So resilience, 
it's there's that support network that's really important and making sure that we've got that what else what else would be the, that thing too as well as uh, as well as going through those characteristics of resilient people i talk through an abc strategy where a is awareness b is balance and c is control so under awareness it's what causes you stress how resilient are you i talk about something i call the resilience reservoir which is you know what tops up our resilience reservoir when are we feeling um, really good in ourselves and able to deal with whatever life th uh, throws at us and actually when when is our resilience reservoir drained and we know that we don't have those emotional reserves depending on what life throws at us and then the b is balance which is looking at how much pressure we can cope with before we start to experience stress what's the impact of stress on our performance what does it do when we're constantly working in a high pressure environment. Mm. And the C is control, which is what the, the practical steps that you can do to help combat the negative effects of stress. Absolutely, so that, that awareness piece is A, from the questionnaire to think about those characteristics, yeah. but also being really practical and go, when am I doing really well? What type is it, what does a good day look like? You know, and what do I do to feed yeah. into that good day? Do you know, oh, do I have plenty of sleep? Do I eat breakfast? Do I have a leisurely journey to work? Or do I have time? I go for a walk, sit if yeah. we're working from home. Yeah. And awareness about the signs and symptoms, because like I said, I can't say these are the sort of signs and symptoms that you will experience because they're so wide and so varied mm. and they change from one person to another. And even what, causes of stress in the first place will be different from one person to another not just how it manifests itself so that awareness piece is really important mm. because that's what enables us to be proactive if i know that a meeting with a particular um, senior exec always winds me up and i see red and i know that my signs and symptoms are that uh, I don't know, I'll drink more than usual, I'll smoke more than usual, I'll have a sleepless night, I'm more short-tempered than usual. If I know that stuff, then I can put in coping strategies to deal with it. I might not be able to avoid that meeting with that senior exec that drives me nutty, but I can go in perhaps slightly armed or slightly prepared for that interaction because I know that it's that person that will press all those buttons and make me see red so I go into it with a different mindset so the awareness piece is really important and I think that's a bit people struggle with that because we don't sit and spend we don't stop enough to pay attention no. I know I talk to clients very often and we'll come out the first especially in a coaching session we might come out the first coaching session and I'll say right between now and the next session I just want you to notice yeah. This might be when we're talking about emotional control, you know, notice when you get annoyed, notice what winds you up, notice what those triggers are. And you can sort of see in their brain going, I don't know what noticing is. <laughs> you can't do anything about it until you're aware of it. You know, and you will slip into it. You will see red, you will get snappy, you will get annoyed, you will have the extra glass of wine or the extra fag. But until you notice it, you can't then do the control. Exactly. Piece. Okay. So, so the balance piece I, I thought was quite interesting about how much pressure we can cope with before that impacts us. Yeah. And listening to you, that sort of triggered my mind around the challenge and support matrix. Yeah. You know, around what does support look like for us in the face of pressure? And does that come into it? You know, whether or not that support that we either have 
from people or the support, again, the support network you mentioned, does that impact on how much pressure we can take? Yeah, I think it, this is all inextricably linked, but the amount of pressure we can all cope with can change on a, uh, a monthly, weekly, even daily basis. So depending on what else we've got going on in our lives, which comes back to what I was saying about taking a holistic approach. Mm. Um, you know, so something that on Monday I just ignore or it washes over me. Mm. Um, but by the following Monday, I've had something happen problems in my in my personal life or perhaps a deadline that I missed and then I got a hard time from somebody because I've messed something up or whatever and a similar situation happens a week later and I fly off the handle so it's again once we're aware of these triggers these early warning bells I know when I need to take action to look after myself and take action before I feel as if there's no alternative than to ring in sick with stress. Absolutely. So obviously we've been talking about how we build resilience within us individually. Um, and that's never going to go away. There's always going to be an individual element to it. But how as leaders do we, do we go about building resilience in our teams? I think there's a place for stress awareness training for managers so that they can spot the signs and symptoms and start to develop confidence in having those difficult conversations. Um, I think there's benefit in having resilience training for staff to raise awareness about what causes them to experience pressure and stress. But I want to come back to what I was saying before about this holistic approach to well-being. Um, I've got a business partner called Rachel Watson who's a highly experienced coach and she's actually worked with a number of businesses to deliver life coaching to the workforce. Mm. So an individual can book a 40-minute coaching session with Rachel and whilst some of the sessions cover work-related topics, by far the majority of sessions discuss non-work-related issues mm. which again goes back to we need to look at the person outside of work and what's happening for them outside work that might be impacting on their productivity, their performance and their motivation inside of work. And those organisations recognise that if we can start to help people with those out of work issues, it will pay dividends in the workplace. Mm. Because the majority of us don't compartmentalise our work selves and our out-of-work out selves. Mm -hmm. If you've had a particularly difficult day at work, you don't simply shrug that off when you get home at night. And similarly, if you've got issues in your life outside of work, it's hard to put those to one side when you're in work mode. And I genuinely believe that any employer who recognises that will see payback in terms of improved staff loyalty, retention, absenteeism, and motivation. It comes back to that holistic approach to staff well-being and genuinely caring for your workforce. Yeah, and I think, you know, if I think about the culture assignments we have, nine times out of ten, it's, it's at that executive leadership level and we're there to focus on leadership. But as I was saying before, you know, that the personal side will come out and sometimes you've got to deal with that part first because... Ultimately, yeah. if you're trying to develop somebody or change somebody, you're talking about behavior at any single point, even if they're just, you know, ticking a different box on a form, it's yeah. still behavioral change and tapping into. So what is impacting that? What patterns are there going on in your life? You know, 
when are you work, when are you working well when are you being emotionally resilient and able to emotionally manage yourself and not able to feeds into that resilience piece so yeah. it crosses over so easily yeah. anything I, that's a barrier whether it's in work or outside of work is going to impact their ability or willingness to move forward mm. so if we can help with that in any way it clears the way for the, the work stuff the performance issues okay so if we think about that, that sort of takes an approach which works more at an organisational level and thinks about how do we enable the workforce to be resilient and what can we put in place. But if, you know, if I'm a leader working with my team and that's not available in my workforce, you know, what, what does a resilient team look like? I think a resilient team would look at the same as any high-performing team. They'll be willing to help each other to go the extra mile they will genuinely look out for each other. And that's why I said, you know, when you see somebody who isn't behaving as you would normally expect them to behave, it doesn't have to be a leader's responsibility to take them to one side and say what's going on. Any supportive colleague will notice that somebody is out of sorts and quite often they're better placed to be able to see those changes in somebody's personality. And it's just being compassion it's just being caring mm. um and you'll see that happening in a resilient team mm -hmm. okay and you know we were talking earlier about the outputs of that how's that going to play out from a results point of view because i think you know people they get that there is an importance to focusing on well-being and focusing on resilience but often there's that justification of, well, what's it going to give me? Absolutely. And a lot of those are intangibles, mm. you know, so it, it isn't necessarily that easy to slap a cost on it and say, well, look at what that's done to productivity and look what that's done to performance levels or KPIs. Mm. It isn't always something tangible like that. Mm. But the intangibles will be, this feels like a nice place to work. Um, so in, in Barclays, um, when I, I took on this role of performance manager, my brief was to improve the working environment. That was my job title or, or my job brief was to improve the working environment because they wanted to increase the workforce and to do that because at the time it was a, it was a period of low unemployment, um, they needed people to be recommending it as a place that people wanted to come to work. Mm. So those are the intangibles, people saying, well, this is where I work and they offer this and they offer that and we do this. And I did some training last week and we have a concierge service and they promote flexible working, whatever it might be. Mm. But people are talking with pride about the place that they work. Okay. So if we're thinking about, you know, to the people listening, thinking, you know, what, what can I do if I'm paying attention to, if I start to build my awareness and, and think about how much pressure I can take from that balance point of view, what are some of those control mechanisms? What can I do to make myself more resilient okay. or to be more mindful? What, what would your top tips be? Okay, well, from a personal resilience perspective, I would say first and foremost, think, be aware of what fills or drains your resilience reservoir. Mm -hmm. um, how healthy, how resilient do I feel right now? So if life were to throw me a curveball, how well would I deal with it? Um, and what 
empties and fills our resilience reservoir is very different from one person to another. So for me, um, as you know, I love my holidays. I go on quite a lot of holidays. So when I've been on lots of holidays, that fills my resilience reservoir. Mm. Resilience reservoir not looking so good for me in 2020. No, no. Um, fantastic. Mine's going outside doing lots of walking and being out in nature. So mine's, my task is Larry, it's getting two hours a day. Yeah. (laughs) So, my, so mine's pretty much drained and I have to sort of dig, a little, dig a little deeper to find my, uh, uh, my coping strategies. So it varies very much from one, one person to another. Um, so then it's a case of having a range of coping strategies. So as you know, Annabelle, I'm a yellow expressive. So my coping strategies are socialising with friends, spending time with family, going on holidays. Um, those are the things that fill my resilience reservoir. So from a serious perspective, with the pandemic this year, it's really reinforced the need for me to have a wider range of coping strategies because I haven't been able to do the things that I would normally do. And my own resilience reservoir drained very quickly at the start of the pandemic. So I have had to learn to appreciate the outdoors, go on more walks, do different things to get the same benefit that my my coping strategies would normally give me. So it's getting creative with your coping strategies really and making sure that you have plenty. So if one of those is taken away, like no holidays, well that's okay because I've developed a love of gardening and doing something else instead. Absolutely. And I think, it, you know, it brings back, so for some people it might be, I know um, when I get a good night's sleep, that makes me, yes. I'm able to cope better. Or um, going on a run, or yeah. going to the gym, or doing yoga, you know, yeah, or, or something. It's that physical stuff. And when that isn't there, things collapse in. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it's, it's the, the physical stuff. It's um, our diet, our nutrition. It's what hobbies we do. And, you know, just because it might not be possible. I know gyms are reopening now, but, you know, if your hobbies are primarily going to aerobics classes, then once that's taken away, it's why I still need to get that feel good factor that I do from doing those aerobics classes. So I'm going to do them online. Um, so it's getting creative around those coping strategies really okay Uh, and then I think for for, for leaders looking to develop resilient teams I think my advice would be to set yourself a goal to have more compassionate conversations with your team set work aside just temporarily just ask them how they're feeling what's going on for them outside of work inquire about their families their hobbies their interests ask them what they need, what would make their life easier. That's what I mean by a compassionate conversation. And I think because a lot of the time we're so busy meeting deadlines and trying to get stuff done that we forget that we're talking about human beings and it's just showing an interest in them and showing that, you know, you are more than the person that processes something or produces something. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and if I think about sometimes it's, it's funny when you're, you're, you're doing different jobs and I bump into lots of different people, you know, and I, and I might describe myself as an executive coach or a leadership facilitator, but that doesn't really work when I'm talking to somebody who's, you know, 78 and walking the dog in the park. 
what do you do? Um, so, that, so my line is I, I help leaders to have better conversations and be nicer to their staff. And actually that's yeah. sort of what you mean by that compassionate yeah, leadership. Absolutely. You know, just talk to somebody. If you're doing a one-to-one, please put your phone down, stick your laptop out the way and just yeah. genuinely go, how are things? What and do, do it authentically as well. Because you genuinely care and you genuinely want to know how they are. Yeah, yeah not like it's four o'clock and my secretary's told me I have to. So I'll now go and, I'll now go and be compassionate for 10 minutes yeah. and wander back. This is where I have to go and wander into the office and ask everybody what they're doing this weekend. <laughs> well, we joke. I do remember somebody telling me, I said, my, the director went on a course and he came back and at four o'clock every day came out to talk to somebody as if it had been timed in by the PA. <laughs> And you, that's when you want to just stick your head in your hands and go, that isn't what we meant by emotional intelligence. Pet. Um, but again, to give that person credit, they wanted to make a difference. Yeah. They wanted to engage with people. It's just knowing how to do it authentically. Absolutely. Yeah. There was a little bit of social awkwardness there and thinking yeah. about how do I come across in the first place? So, so we've got, we're thinking about our resilience reservoir. We are being creative with our coping strategies. And we are having those more genuine, authentic, compassionate conversations and really getting to know our teams. Absolutely. Okay, fantastic. So, so you mentioned your business partner. Is there a website that people can, can check out? Or Yes, we are uh, thewellbeingprogram.com. Fabulous. Well, we'll stick that in the show notes underneath. So look, Sarah, thank you for joining us. I have very loved welcome. this conversation. You know, we have many over um, a dinner table, but invariably none of them about this. Um, so it's really been fascinating. So thank you. Um, for those of you listening, if you enjoyed this and found it useful, then please share it out with your teams or send it to a friend or colleague who might find it useful too. We can only grow our listenership by you telling more people about it. So thank you to those who've listened in to the episode so far. And if you also want to check out previous episodes on reflection or embodied leadership, which really sort of explore some of the aspects we've been talking today, then you'll find them further back in the, in the list on the website. Thanks for listening to The Being Leader. 